Good morning. Well, we had a wonderful vacation. We went up to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, what some might call heaven, Rocky Top. We spent a week there, and then we went over to Nashville to see my parents, and they send their love. I can't hug and kiss all of you um, because I'm a germaphobe, but my parents told me to hug and kiss all of you. Uh, They send one big hug, one big collective kiss. They miss you all. And appreciate your thoughts and your prayer and your kindness. And um, they just, they were good. They looked really good. David and Lynn are taking good care of them. Uh, I want to thank Johan for filling in for me. Give Johan a round of applause. We, uh, we went up to Gatlinburg with the foxes. So that's my in-laws. And we spent a week in a cabin And Nana and Papa love the grandchildren. And so uh, sometimes I think maybe more than their parents. Anyway, um, (laughs) they they then went home at the end of the week, and we went over to to Nashville. And when we got back, Nana hadn't seen the baby in, in like eight days. And she walks in, and she goes, oh, my gosh, look at how big you've gotten. I thought, You just saw her. You spent a week with her in a cabin, and you only haven't seen her for eight days. But you know what happens is, especially when, you know, people are growing fastly, especially young people, those eight days can be a big deal. Well, kind of the same thing happened. I I went away for two weeks, and I was sitting in Johann's Bible Fellowship class this morning, and he was blowing me away with his ability to teach. I mean, I get, it was good for me to go away to see the growth. I told him, I said, you know what I was thinking? While you were sitting there, you had your Bible on your lap. I said, if you lost your Bible or you couldn't bring it to church, you'd be just fine. He knows the word of God so well. Like, I, I, he knows the, the verse and he knows the, he knows the details of every verse. A real commitment to the word of God. I, I, listen, you can't ask for any more from your pastor than to love the word of God and write it on its heart. And we just are so grateful to have Johan and to have his, his passion for the word of God. So thank you so much for filling in. You are a, truly a blessing to us all, including me. I told him, I, I said, I know the verses, but, but I don't know them like you know them. I said, I, I, know, I know how to deal with them when I get them, but if I don't have Google, I'm out of luck. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, thank you for the gifts that you've given to the church. And those gifts are people and their gifts. They come and share them with the church. And we're just so grateful for the many people who you've gifted in our ministry to come and share with us you. Job said, I've only heard about you. And the implication is that Job had heard incorrectly about you. By people who were supposed to tell correct things about you, they were telling incorrect things about you. But that when he finally saw you, it was at that moment where he repented in sackcloth and ashes. Because it is a frightful thing to stand in the presence of a holy God. And so I thank you for the passion of the leaders here to present the holiness of God so that we might all be humbled and be led by your 
holy and sovereign lordship. Father, be with us this morning. Help me to communicate this message in a way that touches lives, that transforms hearts, and that puts hearts in a ready preparation for when evil and suffering come into our lives, which inevitably will. You promised as much in your word when you said in this life you will have trials. We will have tribulation. And so, Lord, give us the mindset, give us your Holy Spirit to remind us that you are with us in all things, that you never leave us nor forsake us, that life, as bad as life can get, those who would persecute us, physical disease, natural evil, moral evil, as bad as it can get, that can't separate us from your love. And not only can life not separate us from your love, death cannot separate us from your love. It is when we who have received Christ as our Savior, who have staked our claim for your eternal kingdom based upon his name, that at that that moment of our death, it is not really death but new life that we are with Christ. And that you keep us and bring us back to that moment in the future where you will glorify our bodies And make us holy in your presence and you will dwell with us forever and ever. There will be no weeping. There will be no suffering. You will wipe away every tear. There will be no hunger. There will be no racism, no poverty. No one may boast because Christ is all in all. And the only thing we can say is praise to your name. So Father, we just want to take this moment this morning as the first day of the week where we set our minds on you as you truly are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to conclude my sermon that I didn't have the opportunity to conclude the week before I, or the week that I left uh, on the problem of evil. I was rushing through it and I had made so many slides, I, I, there, each one was so important that I wanted to take that time and explain it and I didn't even get to the most important part which is, okay, what do we do with all the information that you've given us? So uh, I want to conclude that sermon and my, my goal this morning is to give you all the right posture to have when evil and suffering inevitably comes into your life. Now, by evil, uh, by suffering, I simply mean the tragedies of life, the hardships of life, and they vary in degree. Uh, One thing that we have to remember is that there's all kinds of types or types of evil. There are natural evils, earthquakes and tornadoes and famine and uh, disease. These are natural evils. There's really no one to point our finger at, so to speak. And those things really affect our lives. People really lose their lives. Their lives are completely devastated and they're changed. And in that sense, it is evil. It, we know that it shouldn't be here. The word evil is really the opposite of good. It is the opposite of the, the, the pleasure, the, the life of of, of, of happiness and peace and tranquility. But it comes in different shapes and sizes. Beyond natural evil, there is moral evil. 
It's what we see on the news every day. Murders happen. There's racism. There's rape. There's thievery. There's exploitation of the poor. There's mistreatment of people. And we say, if they would only not do that, we wouldn't have this evil. Yeah, but they do. And it's real. And it really affects our lives. There's gratuitous evil. Or from our perspective, gratuitous evil. That is to say, the evil that you and I can't make sense of. How does it happen? Why did it happen? What, what could be God's good purpose in allowing that sort of evil to happen? Of course, that is from our limited perspective. And then there's the greatest evil of all, at least as we personally experience, it is personal evil. It is the big question of many of our lives, which is, why did God permit that thing, that bad thing, to happen to me? Why am I the victim? And I want to unpack this this morning so that we have a response when whatever evil comes our way or whatever evil is going on in the earth, that we have an explanation so that we don't lose our faith in the midst of this evil and suffering. It's a very, very real thing. It's perhaps one of the greatest objections against the, the will of God or the existence of God, which is if God is good and all-powerful and all-knowing, uh, all he would want to destroy evil. He would know how to destroy evil. He would have the, the, the uh, knowledge to destroy evil. But evil exists. So either God's not like this or he doesn't exist. And we looked at that as the first major problem. There are several mistakes that we make when evil comes, and I don't want us to make those mistakes anymore. The first thing we do is we reject God's existence. We assume that the presence of evil in the world is logically inconsistent with God's existence. But we learn that it's not logically inconsistent with God's existence. That the almighty, all-knowing, all-loving God has permitted evil to exist for a good reason. Now that reason is not or has not been revealed to us. Ultimately, we don't know what God's ultimate reason is for revealing evil, but we know he gets the glory. Some say, well, if, if, okay, if that doesn't work, then God must be angry at me. But we tried to show you that that's not a good response either. That when people experience suffering and tragedy or evil of any kind in their lives, they wrongly assume that God must be angry at them. But the Bible tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means God is no longer pouring out his wrath on you. He poured out all his wrath on his son. Why would he pour out a single drop of wrath on you when Christ bore all the wrath of God on the cross? So God no longer pours out his wrath on you. So that's not a biblical answer. It's not that God is angry at you because there is now no 
our condemnation. We also saw that God uses suffering and tragedy or evil in our lives to bring about first our good. You say, gosh, I wish he would have done it another way. Yeah, me too. I wish that there was a, I wish I could go to Burger King and get the number eight, which is the chicken sandwich. Has, there, has your mom ever made anything that good? No, she hasn't. My dad used to say that. Son, I can make just as good as, you cannot. False. You don't have the deep fryer that they have. And when they drop that chicken patty in that deep fryer, something magical happens. And I just wish that my diet, I wish there was a diet out there called the Burger King chicken sandwich number eight diet. And every time that I wanted to lose weight, I would just eat a breakfast chicken sandwich and a lunch chicken sandwich and a dinner chicken sandwich. They're so good. I bit into one. We were on, the, we were on vacation. You know, you start to excuse all your bad habits. You're like, oh, I'm on vacation. Heart disease doesn't exist on vacation. So I bit into one when we were, in, we, we were up in Georgia. And the woman brought it out, and they were bringing the food, and I bit into it. And the grease just splattered in my face. It was hot. And it, it burnt me. And I went, mm, kind of, it was a labor of love. And I just had to finish that sandwich. And the woman looked at me like, welcome to Georgia. I was like, yes. But that's not the case, right? I wish it were that way. We have to eat healthy. We have to go to the gym. We have to work out. We have to do all those things we don't want to do in order to make ourselves healthy. So God uses these things to work for us. Samuel Bolton, the 17th century English Puritan theologian, reminded us of this. He says, it is clear that so far as afflictions are part of the curse for sin, that God does not and cannot afflict his people for sin. Nor does God afflict his people for sin as if such afflictions were payments or satisfactions for sin and as if God's justice was not fully satisfied for sin by Christ, as if Christ had left something for us to bear by way of satisfaction. No, says Bolton, the Catholics say this, and therefore they perform penances and punish themselves, but the Protestants do not, for Christ alone is our atonement. Then we also learn, though, that many of the struggles in our lives are really the result of our poor choices. Many of our struggles are caused by the consequences of our poor life decisions. And we went through Proverbs, Proverbs 10.4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Maybe your life struggles are because you have failed to employ the wisdom of God in your life. You know, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is information, but wisdom is the application of that information. It is, dare I say, the right application of that information. The timely application of that information. And we learn that maybe, maybe, it's not that God is angry at us, but God has given us the consequences of our own poor decisions. But now we have to talk about mistake number three, and that's the one I want to spend some time on this morning. 
It's the presence of evil in the world that causes some people to incorrectly believe that God must not be in total control of everything that happens. Let me explain something that may not be obvious. God cares very deeply about a right knowledge of him. In the Bible, false teachers are more often than not criticized greater than simply people who believe other faiths. It is to take the name of God, to blaspheme the name of God with a false teaching about God. And we may say, okay, well, at least we believe in God. We just don't believe that the Bible says everything correctly about God. Because we can't understand it. And I want to warn you this morning that that is a very serious sin. It is a very serious offense. You are calling into question God's character. Making him out to be a liar When you question the revelation of his word, when you question how he himself reveals himself to you yourself, it is a very serious sin indeed. This response is unbiblical. That means that to say that God is not in control of everything from the greatest to the least even evil, even the evil that happens in your life. To say that is to contradict the word of God. John Piper says, we know that God is in control of everything at all times, from the greatest thing to the least, because the Bible teaches it both by direct statements and by direct implication. Ephesians 1.11 Tells us that God works all things according to his will. How many things? All things. What about the really bad things? All things. What about the really good things? All things. What about the times of indifference? All things. What about when it seems like he's silent? All things. In him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. What is the counsel of his own will for why war happens, for why holocaust happens, for why slavery happens, murder and rape and genocide happen? We don't know. But it is our responsibility when those things come to not accuse God of evil and to praise and worship and glorify his name. So we make this mistake that when people sometimes experience evil or suffering, they may incorrectly assume that God is not in control. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Job chapter 31. Job chapter 31. My Bible just opened up to that passage because I've been reading it so much. I don't even have my bookmark there. So the story of Job, Job is a righteous man. On earth there's none as good as Job at this time. He is a holy man. God has richly blessed him. 
and in one fell swoop, Satan has destroyed and taken away everything from him. Doesn't take his life, even takes his health. Takes his children from him. Takes his home and his possessions from him. Takes his health from him. This is a good man. Why do, why do these bad things happen to good people? And this is going to be Job's question to God. He says that God, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? So Job not only doesn't commit the sin of adultery. Job says, I don't commit it outwardly, but I don't even commit it inwardly. This predates Jesus coming with the Sermon on the Mount and teaching that we can break the covenant of adultery with our eyes and in our minds. And Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to even look upon a virgin. We have a real holy person. It means that when no one's around, when no one can look at our mind and in our thoughts, Job says, I'm holy. What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? He's asking God a rhetorical question. In other words, he's saying, I've done all this good, God, for you, and look at what you've taken away from me. It's not calamity for the unrighteous. In other words, bad things happen to bad people, not good people. If you live a good life, bad things won't happen. And there's an entire false theology that... that is pervasive in this very city that teaches that health and wealth and prosperity are for God's chosen people. And it's a mockery of the word of God. Most obviously in the Son, who was perfect in every way, yet God nailed him to the cross. And Job asked the question, I'm a good person. Why does all this bad stuff happen to me? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? I mean, Job really thinks he's got a claim before God to say, God, I've done so much good for you. Why would you do this to me? And so many times when evil happens to us, we get angry at God. We shake our fist at God. We say we don't deserve this. Other people, there are bad people in our lives. They deserve it. And I'll, I'll confess, that's hard. It's hard to watch our enemies succeed. The feeling that right is ever on the scaffold and wrong is ever on the throne. And Job is asking this. In verse 35, he says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Now he's saying, God, you don't even hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Job says, I don't even know what I've done to deserve this. I don't even know. God, can you at least show me? Fine, if you're going to take away all my possessions, but tell me what I've done wrong. What I did to deserve the loss of my children and of my home and of my possessions and even of my health. Well, be careful what you ask for. From God, because he will give it to you. Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Now, I can't read all of this because you all have to get to Piccadilly. So, <laughs> but I want you. <laughs> 
See how I did that? See how I made you guys the bad guy? I want you to read chapters 39, 40, 41 this week to prove my point. I want you to just read those chapters, but I'm going to read 38. God is getting ready to answer Job. Job said, where are you to answer me? You know, that's what we do when evil and suffering comes. We want an answer from God. You ever, you ever demanded an answer from your parents? How many, time, how many times did that work out? Dad, I want an answer right now. How come I have to pay rent? That ever work in your favor? That never worked out. And a good parent knows this. He knows that it's essential that his child not hear but understand. I want you to watch what God does. Because Job has asked a question and God is going to answer it with three chapters of questions. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, you don't know what you're asking. You think, you, you think Job, you've got it all right. He says, dress for action like a man. In other words, get ready. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days begun and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of the light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the path to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. He's mocking him now. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is it the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? 
Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season or can you guide the bear with its children? He's speaking about the constellations. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and they say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? When they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? This goes on and on and on. Do you see the point? You're not God. You are but a man. And as Paul said in Romans 9, who are you, O oh man, to question what God does? The answer to the problem of evil from the Bible is to shut up your mouth before the holy sovereign Lord. You say, I don't like that. But you will never live with God until you live with God on his terms. And to live with God on his terms is to do so on your knees and humbly declaring, I am not the Lord. Well, when it concludes, Job says this in verse 42. He says... I know that you can do all things. It says the Job answered the Lord and he said this, I know that you can do all things. All things. There's not a thing that happens. Snow and rain don't happen apart from God. When a lion catches its prey, God gave the prey to the lion. When the stars are aligned perfectly and our universe is aligned intricately, God did it. God does it. Nothing happens. Everything from the greatest to the least happens according to God's holy counsel. And he asked Job a very crucial question. You come in with dark counsel. In other words, you don't know why I did this. And Job, in the right spirit, says this. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's repeating God's question to him rhetorically, as if to say, it is me, it is I. 
Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak. Now I will speak. Okay, God, you said to me, you, you hear, you dress for action, you hear, hear my word, and now man has an opportunity to respond to God. He has an opportunity to tell God what God needs to hear and listen to what he says. Job says, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What do you say to God? Holy God, get away from me, I am unclean. When Isaiah stood before the throne of God, the angels that were around God, the seraphim, six wings, two to cover their eyes, two to cover their feet, two to keep them in the air to fly, they were declaring what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And what did Isaiah say? Hey, what's up, God? So cool to be here. You got a sweet crib. What did he say? Whoa, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell with a people of unclean lips. And in a moment of compassion, an angel flew over to him and burned his lips to atone for his wickedness so that he could stand there before God. When Peter was called by Christ and Christ told him to throw his net over the boat and to receive the fish into his boat, when he saw what God had done, he looked at Jesus and said, get away from me for I am unclean. You know, if you don't have that response when you read scripture and when you go to church, you may not be seeing God. Too many pastors are just talking about God. But you need to see him. And to see him is to have repentance. To see him is to fall on your knees and declare holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so that when wickedness and evil and suffering come into your life, the right posture we ought to have is trust in God. How should we respond to suffering in the world? I want to look at each one of these this morning. Number one, we should respond with humility. Number two, we should respond with trust. All of this is before God. We should respond with worship. And we should respond with hope that God will destroy evil. Let's talk about with humility. We just looked at Job 42, 1 through 6. But if I could unpack it for you very quickly, in verse chapter, or in chapter 2, more than simply uh, assenting to God's absolute, all-encompassing power, Job declares that God's authority alone is necessary and sufficient for all that he so pleases to do. Job says in verse 2, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Why? Because he is the Lord. God has ultimate authority to do with us whatever he wants. Paul said it like this, does not the potter have the right over the clay? Does not the potter have the right to mold one vessel of clay out of the same lump for honorable use and to take out of that very same lump 
and mold for himself a pot for dishonorable use? Begin by acknowledging God's right. God's right to rule this universe however he pleases. Humbly understanding that you don't know. Humbly acknowledging that you so often darken God's counsel with knowledge, without knowledge, and without understanding. John Calvin illustrated the true knowledge of God in this way. He says, when we look directly at the sun, he says, look at this. He says, if at midday we either look down to the ground or on the surrounding objects which lie open to our view, we think our ourselves endued with a very strong and piercing eyesight. We go to college and we open up our psychology books and we open up our sociology books and our philosophy books and our religion books and we think we've mastered these subjects. Now that's not to say that they don't have use, but when we look at them, we fancy ourselves as pretty darn smart. So we look at God. He says, but when we look up to the sun and gaze at it unveiled, the sight which did ex that did excellently well for the earth is instantly so dazzled and confounded by the refulgence as to oblige us to confess that our acuteness in discerning terrestrial objects is mere dimness when applied to the sun. No human being, says Thomas Sowell, can have even 1% of all knowledge. No human being, no human being can have even 1% of all knowledge. But God has all knowledge. And so we must begin in the midst of evil and suffering to respond in humility. So many people live their lives from day to day assuming that they have a proper knowledge of God. They say something like, God is love. In other words, by that they mean God doesn't judge me for my actions. He's an all-approving God, a non-judgmental God, a God who never condemns, never judges, and only seeks my pleasure. He would never tell me that my lifestyle is wrong. After all, look at what the sociologists and look at what the psychologists are telling me about gender and about sexuality and about marriage. The Bible's outdated. And yet, what do we know? We only know what God has revealed to us. This is why so many Americans cannot stomach a healthy diet of biblical theology. It is not that the food is spoiled. There's nothing wrong with the word of God. There's nothing wrong with what you have called the old ways. It's not the Bible. The food is not spoiled. But your self-centered stomachs have become too delicate to digest the meat of the glory of God. 
Albert Moeller asked in a recent speech, how long would we have to sit in an average church today before you heard anything that remotely resembles the truth of God? Today we're told, if you want your church to grow, you've got to dumb it down, make it easy, speak calmly, don't offend, don't talk about the old theology. The experts in church growth tell us we must scratch the itching ears of those who look for churches that will endorse their sinful passions. But the faithful church preaches the truth about God so that sinful men and women will look at the holiness of God and repent in dust and ashes. The greatest sermon that was ever preached on American soil was Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hand of the Angry God. And when he preached it, historians tell us that people were yelling and coming up to the front begging for him to stop. You won't hear anybody say that in a church growth think tank. When you preach, make sure that you preach in such a way that people beg for you to stop. But it's what led to the great awakening. How do we awaken? By the glory of God being seen truly and fully. Not by hiding it. Timothy was told by Paul to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. Reprove and rebuke and exhort. That means when you come to church, you hear the word of God, and it shouldn't make you feel good. A lot of times it's going to make you feel bad. That's what it did to Job. Job says, I heard about you, and everything was good. Till I saw you and I repent in dust and ashes. It's a matter of truth. And the thing that happens when we see God is this. We repent. The American church, that is all of us, must repent of our failure to lead people to God in his true glory. Rather than to give people only the false whispers about a God made in their own image. How do we respond when evil comes? Not only with humility, but with trust. We have to remember that the dealings, all of the dealings of God with his people are grounded in love. Remember, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we understand that in the midst of suffering, when suffering comes to our doorstep, that God loves us. Now I want to tell you something. If you are not in Christ, if you are not, if you have not received Christ as your Savior, I have no guarantee of that today. You are under the wrath of God. You have two options, every human being. Either Christ bears the wrath for you, or you bear it for yourself. Samuel Bolton said this. He said, Christ has freed the godly from all, from eternal punishment, as the wrath which is due to sin, from spiritual punishment, as it is related to eternal, and from temporal, as far as it is related to both the others, and as far as it has anything of God's wrath in it, God has thoughts of love in all he does to his people. The ground of his dealings with us is love. 
even though the occasion may be our sin, the manner of God's dealings with his people is always love. And the purpose of his dealings is love. He has regard in all to our good here, to make us partakers of his holiness and our glory hereafter to make us partakers of his glory. Bolton says this, he says that when God, when suffering enters the life of the believer, it enters medicinally. You know what that means? It means it's there to heal you. It's there to make you better. You say, I, but I'm not going to, why would God give me this disease? Why would God take away my loved one? Listen to me. You're not going to get an answer. Do not waste your suffering by asking a question which God will not answer. Use your suffering as an opportunity to trust him and to praise his name. This is what Job did. The third thing we have to do is we have to not only be humble and trust him, but we have to respond in worship. The Bible says in Job 1.20 and 22, after Job had lost everything, it says, then Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and worshipped. Now sometimes... Christians can confuse this posture, thinking that in the midst of suffering, we should be giddy. I've seen this at funerals. I've been to a lot of funerals in my day, more than I could even count. And I've seen this theme happen. I've seen Christians say in an almost giddy fashion when their loved one has died, oh, he's fine. We, yeah, we, everything's fine. Yeah, we know where he is. Praise God. We're going to celebrate his life. You're not convincing anybody of that. You know why? Because death is a curse. Suffering is hard. When Christ was going to be crucified and he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't say, this is great. I can't wait for them to whip my back to shreds. Woo! Go ahead and ram that nail right through my wrist. And hang me on that tree. This is great. What did he say? He says that he, he had a passion. He said, I am sorrowful. I am troubled. It's okay in the midst of suffering, Christian, to acknowledge it as suffering. You can be mournful and troubled by it. That's the right posture. It's what Job did. He tore his clothes. He weeped. He shaved his head. Let him go through it. Some of, you, some of you don't like it when people mourn that way because it makes you uncomfortable. But let him mourn. Don't tell someone how to grieve. Let him mourn. Just remember that in the midst of your mourning, you must also worship. Job fell to the ground. He mourned, but he worshiped. picture is one of Job casting himself on the ground in humility before God. It's Job acknowledging his utter dependency on God. The one whom he himself will acknowledge is well within his right to give both good and evil to whomever he so pleases. 
goes on, it says, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Where does Job, where does Job place the responsibility, at least not the moral responsibility, but who is he saying has caused this evil? He's saying God has. You say, no, God doesn't cause evil. No, God does cause evil in such a way that he is not responsible for it. Look at what Job did. He said, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. You say, yeah, but Satan allowed, Satan was the one doing this. Yes, God used Satan to carry out God's will. God could have stopped it. But he didn't. You say, why would he do that? Because his counsel's beyond our way. And notice what Job did. He said, blessed be the name of the Lord. He acknowledged that the suffering and that this hardship came from God. That it wasn't Satan. It was only Satan as Satan was given permission by God who's sovereign. So that nothing happens to us apart from his authority and sovereignty. You can be you can rest assured today and you can be comforted in this fact that not one thing will befall you apart from God's sovereign control. And listen to what it says. It says this, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says in a narrative here, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. You see the difference? Job acknowledges that it comes from God but he doesn't charge God with wrong. He worships. He worships him. When evil and suffering comes to our doorstep, the believers should not be giddy over this suffering. But that doesn't mean we can't worship. Job worshiped. Christ did not curse God for sending him to the cross but rather went to his knees in prayer, acknowledging God's sovereign will as the universe's highest good. When evil and suffering inevitably come your way, it will. That's not the time to reject God or to speak falsely of him. That's the time to worship him. That is the time to acknowledge his lordship over heaven and earth, over you and your family over your possessions and your future, over your health, over your wealth, over your prosperity. That is the time to acknowledge that God alone, not the doctors, not the persecutors, has the final say-so on the very last breath of your life. And whatever the doctors say, and whatever your, your, your persecutors say, God will be the one who has the final say-so. Rest. In the knowledge and in the peace of God's sovereignty. Finally, we should always, always, when we are encountered with the reality of tragedy and evil, respond to it with hope. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He said, since therefore the children share in the flesh... And blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, and that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 
the suffering in this life is not the end of the story. Do you know that? Sometimes we hear you live. Someone, some, someone used to say, I won't tell you who it was, but my dad would say, he would say it like this because he's a Southern Baptist. He'd say, life's a beach, son, and then you die. He'd say beach, okay, so just so you know. But a lot of us live our life that way. I got to get everything I can right now because when I die, it's over with. No, listen to me. Expect nothing in this life but suffering and tragedy. Expect it. In other words, in other words, what I'm saying is that's a guarantee. Your prosperity is not a guarantee. Your health and your wealth is not a guarantee. But you know what is guaranteed by the Bible? Suffering. In this life, you will have trials. He didn't say in this life, you'll have wealth and prosperity. In this life, all you got to do is walk up to the house that you like, put your hand out in front of it and say, that's my house, and God will give it to you. That's baloney. And don't you do it in front of my house. We're going to have problems. I'm going to let the dog out on you. Then I'm going to let Stephanie out on you. That's the worst. I'll leave you with this. Several months ago, I was asked by my wife to go and talk with one of her patients. For those of you who don't know, Stephanie is an oncology nurse. And she has to go and she has to deal with patients who are many times at the end of their life. Oncology means they deal with, she deals with cancer patients. They come young, they come old. She sees suffering like I've never seen before. And there was a man who was a believer in God. But he was part of a movement, part of a church that was more along the lines of the charismatic thinking. And the pastors that he knew of were coming in and they were telling him and telling his wife, he had been diagnosed with a very aggressive form of leukemia. They were telling him, just pray for your miracle and trust God. He will heal you. One after another. I didn't know this. So they asked me to come. And I didn't know what to say. It's very hard to talk to someone who's just gotten the worst news of their life and who is rapidly declining. He was sitting in the room and they asked me to come in. Oh, hello, pastor. They brought me in and I said, okay. And I, I just said, okay, what am I going to tell this man? And I sat down and I had been reading at that moment, at th this time in my, my study, through the book of Romans. And I opened the Bible and I read this to him. I saw his condition. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Right now is the time of trial and tribulation. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's not in this life. In other words, Paul's saying what Jesus said in this life. Even believers, especially believers, you will have trials. It is a foregone conclusion. He says, but for this and in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It is the Spirit who helps us in our weakness. He goes on at the end of the chapter, and I read this. I said, What shall separate you from God? If God is for you, who can be against you? At that moment, I had to tell him, the cancer that is eating away his body, I had to tell him, even your cancer is not against you in any way that can take you away from the love of God. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who was at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? In other words, nobody, not even cancer, nobody, no, no one, no thing, no tornado, no cancer, no diabetes, no murder, no rape, none of that can condemn you if you are in Christ. No drug addiction, no porn addiction, none of it in Christ can condemn you. Jesus is our intercessor. He has suffered the wrath of God once and for all. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Note that Paul does not say it won't come. He just says that when it does, it won't separate you from Christ. What about distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When I left that day, his wife, Berthy, said, well, well, thank you. Um, I think they thought this was a kind of an odd experience. She said, well, thank you. And she told Stephanie, she, she looked like she was mulling something over, but she told Stephanie later, she said, she said uh, he was different than the other pastors who came. About a month later, Mr. Aponte died. But before he died, they brought me in on the last day. He was uh, taking his last breaths. And 
his wife said, you know, you were the only pastor who came in and told us the truth. Every other pastor came in and told us that our faith would cure if we had faith. You know, it wasn't anything special about me. It's a right attitude with the word of God. When we read the word of God and we correctly apply it, we see that evil and suffering are real for us in this life. But that the right way to approach it is with trust, in humility, in worship, and in hope. I told her, I said, Berthy, when I saw her, we went over to the, the funeral, uh, to the viewing, and I said, Berthy, your husband believed in Christ. I had time to, to, to talk with him about that, and he received Christ as a Savior. I said, I want to tell you, this cancer has not separated him from the love of God. Right now, he is with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Remember this. I can't guarantee that suffering won't come and in what, what grade or what level it's going to come in your life. But when it does, remember, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are almighty. You are holy, God. And we don't understand why these things come into our lives. And you have not seen fit to give us an answer. But you have given us an example. The example was Christ. That though he did not count equality with God, a thing to be clung to, but he emptied himself, obeyed your will, and went to the cross. We know that Jesus is the perfect example of what it means to be a Christian, a human being, and a true believer of Christ. And we know that he prayed to take away our suffering. And certainly, Lord, we ask for you to deliver us from evil and from suffering. But as Christ, our perfect founder of our faith, as he prayed, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Give us that peace. Amen.